The following message features Mike Reeves and was recorded at the second main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 conference. It's entitled, The Triune God and the Cross, Why the Gospel Has to be Trinitarian. Mike Reeves is theologian at large at Wales Evangelical School of Theology. Is it any surprise that with the triune God, three persons in perfect unity that it should be so encouraging to come together as a people. Is that any surprise? No. It's good to be with God's people to encourage each other together. Let's pray. Father, though we are so many here, you know the hearts of everyone who is here. And we pray that you would do individual business with every one of us here. Father, there will be some who are proud, whose own name often seems more precious to them than yours. By revealing to them the glory of your salvation this morning, would you make them more proud of Jesus than they are of themselves, more interested in you than they are in themselves. And I pray too for those who are bruised, who are hurting, who are struggling with assurance. I'm just wondering if their sin is greater than your grace. Father, by your spirit, apply the balm of Jesus' blood to them. We pray that they might see there is more righteousness, more grace in Jesus than ever there could be sin in them. And I pray too, specifically for anyone whose own earthly father has tainted the word father for them. Lord, may they see that you are not called father because you are like that man. He was called father because he was meant to be so perfectly loving as you. Heal that dear brother or sister, I pray. And for every one of us, bring us to cherish you, to delight in you more than anything so that we might freely walk away from our sins, loving you and saying at the end of our time together, Hallelujah, Abba. We love you more than anything. We cherish you more than anything. We would never leave you. We want to sing your praises to the world and forevermore for our hearts are one and we love you. In Jesus' wonderful name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Friends, we here this morning, we are the children of the Reformation. We care about the sort of truths that people like Luther and Calvin and friends fought for. That salvation is a gift of God's pure grace and kindness. That God declares us righteous, 
Oh, not because we've been righteous, but because Christ gives us his righteousness. Those are the sort of sweet truths we really care about. But what is the Trinity to do with that? What possible difference could the Trinity make to those beautiful truths that those reformers fought and were often burned for and that we love? What difference does the Trinity make? How does the Trinity shape this lovely gospel that we cherish? And what we're going to see this morning is that the triune nature of God, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, is the mold for the gospel. Everything beautiful about the gospel is only so because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity gives our gospel its character and its flavor. You know, all the gratuity and comfort of the gospel that Martin Luther fought for in the Reformation found its origin in the triune nature of God. And the Reformers were absolutely clear on this as they began their brave fight for it 500 years ago. At the very beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote these words. He said, the Trinity is the highest article of faith on which all others hang. Isn't that striking? Let's start at the bottom. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit... There is no salvation to be had at all. You know, I once tried to look into the question of salvation in Islam to try to compare it to Christianity to see the differences. And I was really surprised when I spoke to Islamic scholars and asked them and found that there is no word for salvation in Islam, they said. And when I pressed them on this, the closest word they could think of in Islam would be a word you'd translate as success. Isn't that revealing? The triune God offers free salvation. Allah requires success. Well, we've seen a little bit last night why that might be, that Only of the triune God can we say this God is love. Only this God is wired to be gracious and merciful, being ever-loving, ever-overflowing, life-giving by nature. But let's see some more. Why is there no salvation without the Trinity? Now, we could go to every aspect of redemption, Jesus' incarnation, his life, resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the throne. We could go anywhere and see this. Let's go to the cross now and see why is there no salvation without the Trinity at the cross. Well, quite simply, let's start here. If God were not triune, 
If the father had no son to sacrifice in our place, well, who would die for us? If God did not provide the sacrifice himself, we would have to do it, right? So if God had no son to provide, we would have to provide the perfect man as our substitute. We would have to provide the substitute, for God would have none to give. See a few little problems with this? That is not grace, is it? If we have to provide the sacrifice, God hasn't done anything for us. We've done it. That's not salvation by grace. And it's not possible either. Just try and find the perfect man. It is only because God the Father does have a son that the cross works. Only because The Son is provided for us. And that means we have a salvation that is possible and a salvation that is all of God's grace. And do you see it? That because the Father has sent the Son, the Son dies in our place and the Spirit applies that beautiful salvation to us. Do you see it? The entire work of salvation is accomplished by God himself. It's all of him. Done. Free gift of grace, not true of any other God. All of grace with this God. So there is no salvation without the Trinity. But I think, I'm afraid, that there are too many Christians who present a Trinity light gospel. So try this as an account of the gospel. See if this this rings a bell for you. Here's an account of the gospel. It's the story of the heavenly school principal and his naughty students. So we've all been caught breaking the rules. And so we're due a long detention. But then along comes a nice classmate called Jesus, and he takes the punishment for us. And so we can go home with a clean school report. Sound familiar? Now, much of what I said does echo the lines of the gospel. But where did I start? God is a heavenly school principal. And that insufficient description of God meant that everything I said about the gospel was deeply defective. There was stuff about it that was true. But it was a very truncated, ultimately distorted gospel. Because I started with a deficient view of God. I didn't start with a God who's a father eternally loving his son. What if, before all things, God is a father who's ever loved, ever delighted in his son? Who's loved his son so much that he longs to share that love? Well, then you see a different gospel. The gospel of a God whose ultimate aim is not to send us home with a clean school report, but to draw us into his life. To embrace us with the very love he has for his dear son. 
You see, the nature of God radically affects the shape of the salvation he would offer. If God is simply a solitary individual who decides to have a creation to rule over, what is salvation? That's, if we say that's it, God is a solitary individual who wants a creation to rule over, what could salvation be? All it could be at its best is we're declared to be law-abiding citizens. That's it. Under his rule. That's it. You can't say anymore. But if God is a father, loving his son by his spirit, salvation is so much richer and sweeter, more than a king. This great king is a father. Father, and salvation means becoming the spirit-anointed sons of God. This means more than just being accepted citizens, more than accepted, more than forgiven, more friends than righteous, adopted, adopted. Here, ultimately and beautifully, is how the Trinity shapes the gospel. Come with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. We're going to just dive straight in at verse 14. And I want you to be offended by the language here. It is outrageous language. That Paul uses. So don't just coast over it. Notice what language he's using. Verse 14. All, ladies, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Really? Do we have to use that sort of language? All? who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God? Well, yes, you can speak of sons and daughters of God, and Scripture does speak of, use a more generic term sometimes, children of God. What's Paul up to here? Well, Paul wants us to be clear here. The status we are all given is the very status of the Son himself. See, I think it's very easy for us to imagine this. That we say, okay, so the father has his beloved son. He cherishes his son. He loves him. And then there are the children down there. Right? The father loves the son. They go, oh, yeah. And then there are mm, the children. Mm. Right? Paul wants to be very clear. No, 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 no. United to the son, that's the status we have. We have the status of the son himself. Ladies, the guys have to make peace with being part of the bride of Christ. We've all got our issues here, (laughs) right? So don't be offended. Enjoy the fact that as the guys are the beloved of Christ, so everyone who has the spirit of God has the very status of the son himself. Don't be ashamed of that. It's not a sexist thing to talk about our sonship. It's about being clear. We share in precisely nothing less than what the son himself has. 
The Father doesn't just give us some exalted, semi-angelic, okay, status before the Father. No, the Son shares with us his own sonship. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we all cry, Abba, Father. Yes, the spirit of adoption elsewhere. In Galatians 4.4, Paul speaks of the spirit of sonship. That because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of his son. We saw that yesterday. That the spirit moves on the son himself making the love of the Father known to the Son, so that the Son bursts out, crying, Abba, my Father. And that's what we're called into. We share the Son's own life before the Father, united to the Son, adopted in Him, as part of His very body, sharing His Sonship. The children of God receive the very Spirit of the Son. The one who's always comforted the Son is our personal comforter, with us now, always with us. He makes us cry the very cry of the Son, Abba. And do you see a very strange thing Paul does here? He's writing here in Romans and in Galatians in good ordinary Greek for everyone to understand, language of the day. And in this entirely Greek letter, he inserts this one Aramaic word, Abba. Isn't that a very strange thing to do? Sometimes preachers show off by trying to shove a bit of Greek and Hebrew in that they know to show how learned they are. I don't think that's what Paul's doing at all. Why does he suddenly flip languages for just one word? Well, in Mark 14, there's this moment where you see Jesus, our Lord Jesus. He's praying in the garden the night before he's crucified and the sweat falling like blood from him in agony. He's in private communion with his father. And in that privacy, he cries out, Abba, Abba, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. This is the term the son himself uses when he speaks to his father. Paul is being as personal and clear as he can that we are given the very status before the father that the son himself has. We come before the father as Jesus himself does. So faithless and cold-hearted, such unworthy failures, and the Son takes us and unites us to himself by his Spirit and takes us right before the Father and says, Father, here's my brother, my sister, your son. We're given his own status by his pure kindness. And you see what's being described here. You see, once... I saw nothing attractive in God. 
I didn't like God. I didn't want God. The very name God was a word I wanted to keep out of conversations because it was a, a word that seemed to judge me and I just didn't want to hear about God. Now, you speak to me of God, speak to me of my Lord, and my heart's reaction is, you know, there is none better. There is none more gracious, none more perfect, none more glorious, none more powerful. And my heart instinctively starts crying, oh, Abba, you are so good. I love you. See what's happened? The Spirit has woken me up to share the holy tastes of the Son. That is a transforming gospel. I don't just win a load of stuff in the heavenly lottery. I'm brought to share this life and freedom, the life of the Son of God. This is eternal life. I'm sharing his life before the Father. The spirit of adoption brings me to share his concerns, his passions, his joys, his cries. The eternally beloved Son comes to share with us the very love that the Father has lavished on him. Those words that the Father said to the Son at the baptism, this is my beloved one in whom I'm well pleased, now apply to us. We're brought into that. And as the Spirit moves on us, we begin to cry as Jesus always has, Abba, we now love you. The Father's eternal love for the Son encompasses us. Now, if you read the Gospels, the Gospels are shot through with this theme. Come and have a look at John's Gospel for a moment. Come to John 1. John 1. Now, when the Word comes to us, From God becoming flesh, his light driving away the darkness, this new creation moment, the word goes out, speaking light into darkness. What salvation does he bring exactly? What is the salvation this word brings? John 1 verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the word, the Son, is presented to us in John 1.18 as being, well, I've got here in the ESV, John 1.18, he's at the Father's side. But in the footnote here, it puts it a little bit more literally. A footnote here I've got in the ESV says, this word was always eternally in the bosom of the Father. In the very heart, the lap of the Father. And Jesus says through John's gospel that his desire is that believers might be with him where he is. Right there in the bosom of the Father. It's something that gets modeled to us at the Last Supper. If you look at John 13, there's this lovely symbolic moment in John 13. Verse 23, we read, One of the disciples, 
whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table, and again I've got, at Jesus' side. But then the footnote says, in the bosom of Jesus. (laughs) See it? That Jesus has been eternally in the bosom of his father, and John, this beloved disciple, is now in the bosom of Jesus. It's why Jesus can say to his father in John 17, 23, Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Could you believe that God could ever say that? Brush your teeth with those words every morning. Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. For he shares with us his own intimate Abba cry. He shares with us his own comforter. He shares with us all that he has, his own life. We'll take Mark's gospel. Where does Mark's gospel start? Do you know? It starts with the baptism scene. The son stands in the waters of the Jordan and the father declares his love for his son as the spirit rests on him. That's where the gospel starts. And Jesus' sonship is crucial through Mark, crucial for the salvation he'll offer. And it climaxes with a moment on the cross, Jesus dies and the centurion says, surely this was the son of God. That's the shape of, well, that's who he is and what salvation he'll offer. Brought from death and slavery to sonship. I've come from Wales, the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have to mention him at some stage. Put it like this. He said, when he was looking at Paul's theology, he said, the apostle Paul's greatest concern is that we should know and realize that we are sons of God. That we should be rejoicing, praising God, crying, Abba, Father. That we should be delivered from the spirit of bondage. May that be true, Father. His, Paul's desire for us, says Lloyd-Jones, is for us to be so sure of this that no matter what comes to us from outside, we remain fully confident we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's a Trinitarian salvation. And to show you how it cashes out, I'm going to show you one. You're going to love this one. Come to Hebrews 2. Here's how it cashes out in the Christian life. Here's what it looks like. Hebrews 2. This one was almost specially written for you. Let's just go in at verse 11. For he who sanctifies... Jesus, and those who are sanctified, us, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, and here's a quote from Psalm 22. Now look at it very carefully. From Psalm 22, Jesus is saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. Okay, that's the first bit. That we know. That's fairly familiar territory. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus, the son, the prophet, the revealer, reveals God to us. Right? Here's the bit we don't think of so much. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Can you picture it? In the midst of the congregation, says the firstborn son of God, I will sing your praise. He is our ultimate worship leader. There he is, standing in the midst of the congregation, surrounded by his brothers and sisters, the saints of God. And he leads their praise. And the first thing he says, verse 13, is, I will put my trust in him. He says in the midst of the congregation, and we'll roar, Amen. The firstborn brother leads us. For to be the sons of God means to live in the slipstream of our firstborn brother. We live with him, in him, following him. And it makes the profoundest difference to how you live your Christian life. Because it is not like Jesus has done his bit, now it's time for you to be grateful. Now it's time for you to pay him back. And that's how it can be if the gospel is simply about getting heaven. No, our new and eternal life right now is about entering into the very life of the Son. Joy, prayers, mission, holiness, suffering, all is a participation in the life of the Son. There he is. Standing at the front, in the midst of the congregation, and he is singing his God's praises, and we sing with him. There he is, filled with delight in his Father, and slowly, slowly, as the Spirit moves in us, we share his delight in the Father. There he is at the front of the congregation. He is a king, victorious over death and sin. And as the Spirit moves in us, slowly we trample down sin under our feet. He's a priest praying for his people and his world. And we join in with him. He's a prophet making known his father to the world. And we make him known with our firstborn brother. I said that this Trinitarianness of the gospel... The fact that the Son comes from the Father, unites us to himself by the Spirit, to bring us into the Father's presence, to know his own life, his own assurance. That's what we're talking about. I said at the beginning that this was central to what the Reformers were fighting for in the Reformation. What brothers and sisters died for in the Reformation. And I want to show you just a couple of examples why... And how that is the case. I want to show you a couple of examples from the French reformer, John Calvin. He doesn't sound French, does he? He was was born called Jean Calvin. But Calvin sounds more cool to English-speaking ears. (laughs) Anyway, Calvin believed this deeply. And he said, Christ's aim in all that he did was 
so to restore us to God's grace as to make the children of men children of God. To make the children of Gehenna heirs of the heavenly kingdom. That was Christ's ultimate aim. To share his life, his glory with us. That we might share his inheritance, his standing before the Father, his life. Or this, I love this. Do you know what, I'm going to do something outrageous now. I'm going to read you a little bit of Calvin's Institutes, I know. And everyone thinks, that must be so scary. What a book. I'm never going to read that. I'm going to read you a bit and you're going to love it. Here is Calvin's explanation of justification. Here's what it means to be declared righteous by God. And what I want you to spot as we look at this, just a short little extract, what I want you to spot is how it's all about a son coming before his father. All right, you ready? We're going to read Calvin's Institutes. (laughs) Okay, now, he's basically, he's riffing off the story from Genesis of how, you remember, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, you need to remember the story. Now, so Esau, the firstborn, he's born, and do you remember what he looks like? He is really, really hairy. In fact, as a man, we know he's so hairy that when Jacob pretends to be him, he puts goat skins on his hands and neck. I mean, how hairy was this guy? (laughs) So Esau is this hairy animal hunter. That's what he likes doing. He likes going out in the fields and popping animals and bringing them home. And his dad just loves the stews he makes. Jacob is a smooth-skinned mummy's boy who hangs out in the kitchen. And his dad's not quite so impressed. Here's what Calvin says. As Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, so he concealed himself in his brother's clothing. And wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor... That smell of the field that his brother has. So Jacob ingratiated himself with his father so that to his benefit, he received the blessing while impersonating another. We, in like manner, hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother, Christ so that we may be attested, clothed in his righteousness in God's sight. And this is indeed the truth, says Calvin, for in order that we may appear before God's face under salvation, we must smell sweetly with his odor. Our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. That's justification, friends. We clothe ourselves with our firstborn brother and with his confidence go into our father's presence. It's all about the Trinity. The Trinitarian shape of the gospel was vital for the reformers. It underscored the assurance, the gratuity, the freeness, the beauty of the gospel. But friends... I think it's been rather neglected in our day. 
And you can see it in our lack of songs about our adoption in Christ. We need more songs on this. Please, can we have more songs on the triune nature of our God and the Trinitarian shape of our salvation? Because this is about securing everything that is beautiful about our gospel. For if God was not a father, he could never give us the right to be his children. All that about the gospel would just disappear. If God was not a father, eternally loving his son, you have to wonder, does he know what fellowship is? If he's been eternally solitary all on his own? Does he have any fellowship he could share with us? And since if he'd been eternally on his own, then, well, what would the gospel be? We might be allowed to live under his rule and protection, but it would have to be at an infinite distance, probably approached through intermediaries. And since, by definition, such a single-person God would not be eternally loving, Would he be gracious enough, even if he were prepared to offer forgiveness? Would he be gracious enough to pay the price for sin himself? Most unlikely. Distant hirelings, we would remain with such a God. Never to hear those golden words of the Son. Father, you've loved them even as you've loved me. With such a God, we will be simply created to be slaves and saved to be nothing but slaves under the all-seeing eye of our distant, unapproachable, and rather unlovely God. But the gospel gives us such intimacy and confidence before the Most High that I, not because I've done well, because I don't do well, I can every day cry, Abba, because of Jesus, because I'm approaching the Father clothed in my firstborn brother. And then approaching my Father like that makes me want to say, Oh, Abba, rid me of this sin within, because I love to be with you, but I hate this sin. It stinks in your presence. But it doesn't mean I can't come. Because I'm clothed with Christ. Beloved children of the Most High, no other God could bring us so close. No other God could so win our hearts. With this God, we can say with all sincerity and all confidence, our Father. Because we pray, as old John Calvin put it, through the mouth of Jesus. In him. And do you see, once again, it does mean we have a salvation that is of grace from first to last with this God. Because of what salvation is. See, I okay, I think we often get a bit confused by this. We say, okay, here's the problem. Problem is God's got really high moral standards. And our problem is that our standards just aren't quite high enough. Even if you say his standards are really high, our standards aren't high enough. But if that's if that's it, if that's the only problem, I think, so my standards aren't high enough. Well, I'll have a go anyway. 
I'll try, because I know I can do a bit better, can't I? But, do you see, it's as if salvation is simply about racking up enough brownie points. Sorry, does that translate? Yeah, you know what that is. Sometimes I wonder, am I speaking just in a language that a few people in England understand? Good, I'm glad it's making sense. Salvation is not... What if salvation is about being adopted as children into the family of God? If that's it, our performance, of course it's not going to get us there because you can't buy your way into a family. Right? Your performance can have nothing to do with it. No one can buy their way into a family. You can only be adopted because the family chooses to adopt you. God's blessing is sonship, becoming a child of God. And so effort can have nothing to do with it, friends. Give it up. Your efforts can make you a slave. But no amount of effort can make you a son. All our efforts to win God's blessing by our own strength can only produce slaves. Slaves who will not inherit. But sonship is free. If you're one of the people who's been wandering, struggling, you need to know this. This is right at the heart of the Christian struggle. You need to know the freeness of adoption. God's adoption of real sinners by pure kindness. Because, look, if you think, because I stand out the front, I'm particularly wired differently to you. Here's my struggle. I'll be honest with you. I go through life thinking, I'm just naturally so faithless, so sinful, uh, so constantly wandering. And and I get troubled by that, and I begin to think, I'm so faithless, surely God can't love me. And you know what I've just done when I think that? I've bought this satanic inversion of the gospel that when I sort myself out, then God will love me. Now come back to who God is. What would any kind father think hearing that? What would any father think hearing that their child thinks they need to earn his favor? Our father looks at you and says, my child, my child, please you start by knowing that I love you. I have always loved you. And when you sin, when you walk away from me, when you deliberately offend me, I do not stop loving you, even though your sin offends me. And nothing you do, not sin nor death, can stop me, my beloved child. I was recently struck by these words from Isaiah 43. Here are words which our fatherly God says to a people who are very filled with sin and failure. And he says, 
Thus says the Lord who created you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. Mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume me. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. A father's affection for his children clothed in the sun. This God finds his glory in making you his. In taking one who does not deserve it and giving you everything. The salvation that God offers is adoption. And there's simply no way to earn that. Because with this God, of course, it's about love, not business. Can I show you one more example from scripture of how this rolls out in the Christian life? What this will do to you if you grasp this Trinitarian shape of salvation. I'll give you one more little example. I want to introduce you to an Old Testament friend of mine. He's one of my great heroes of the Old Testament, but he's not one of the greatest names. He's not one of the most famous figures. But here's why he's very special. He is the only Old Testament character who is repeatedly said to have followed the Lord fully or wholeheartedly. Do you know who that is? Caleb. Repeatedly. Caleb is said to have followed the Lord fully or wholeheartedly. Come and meet Caleb for a moment. Come to Numbers 13. Now you really need to look very closely. This is the sort of reason why genealogies and stuff like that is cool in Scripture. You'll get to see why right now. Numbers 13. Um, now this is, um, the Israelites are right on the border of Canaan. So they're just about to go into the promised land. And Moses sends a spy, one from each of the tribes of Israel. Okay, and here's the list of the spies. Verse 4. Numbers 13.4, and here are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Huri. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Okay, so what do we know about Caleb so far? What tribe's he of? Judah. Okay, now lock that one down. He's of the tribe of Judah. And his father is Jephunneh. So who's Jephunneh? (laughs) Ready for this one? Numbers 32. Numbers 32. You're always waiting for this one, weren't you? Numbers 32, verse 12. Who is Jephunneh? Numbers 32, verse 12. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. The Kenizzites were pagan Canaanites. Back in Genesis 15, Abraham was told that the Lord would give him the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and all that scary lot. Caleb 
is an ethnic Gentile who's joined Israel. That explains his name. The Israelites always thought of foreigners as Gentile dogs. And Caleb means dog. Presumably, he kept the name as a badge of honor, as it still is today. For yes, he was a Gentile dog by natural birth. But he'd been adopted into the royal tribe of Judah. In Caleb, a Gentile dog became a son of the royal tribe of Judah. Is it a coincidence then that Caleb was so repeatedly spoken of as wholehearted for the Lord? No. For welcomed and embraced, he was far less likely to be tempted by Baal worship. And when he went into the land, undeterred by those mighty Anakim, he remained a hardy soldier of the Lord into his late 80s. For he knew he, by grace, belonged with the Lord and his people. He'd been adopted. Friends, brothers and sisters, how much more with us? We have been, we vicious rebels. We vicious little lumps of mud have been called by God's own grace to be not of the royal tribe of Judah, but to be co-heirs with his all-perfect son. That is what he offers us. Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that's the salvation we have. A free salvation that we natural sinners can be born again into to enjoy with everlasting assurance. Approaching our Father dressed in the clothing, the righteousness of our firstborn brother. How does the Trinity shape the gospel? Oh, the Trinity makes the gospel. The Trinity, with the Father, Son, and Spirit, we have a God who is love, a God we'd want to know, a God we can trust. The Trinity makes salvation possible, and the Trinity makes salvation sweet. Only with this God are we freely welcomed in to share the joy of God himself and cry, Our Father. Brothers and sisters, what rich words. Let us then press in to enjoy the Trinitarian shape of our salvation, our precious adoption in Christ. Let's be so full of it that like our firstborn brother, we cry before all the world, filled with the Spirit, we praise you, our Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And maybe his fatherly grace will be so proclaimed in our day that like in Luther's, who stood for all this, we might see a reformation of the church again and the world might quake and be transformed. Let's pray. Oh, Abba. We, we would not dare believe it if you did not promise it.
that you've loved us as you love your son. That we can approach you with boldness as he approaches you. The sin in us screams otherwise. And so I pray, would you give every one of us the faith to know that it is Jesus who commands our standing before you, not our performance. And so make us revel in calling you Abba every day and make our assurance before you the grounds of saying we love you and Father, we hate our sin. We would be rid of it. We do not want that in your presence. Father, be glorified in our lives as you are glorified in our most beautiful firstborn brother. And through us, we pray, glorify your name. We pray these things with such, such gratitude in his precious name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Mike Reeves entitled, The Triune God and the Cross, Why the Gospel Has to be Trinitarian. It was given at the second main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God West 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemen.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.